Well, good morning again. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Romans 6 is one of the best chapters in all the Bible. And so as we come to the end of it, I want us to read the entirety of it, that we might work it deeply into our hearts and into our minds. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6. You'll find it on page 942 of your pew Bibles. This is God's Word. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Father, thank you for these beautiful words, these rich gospel truths. Oh, Lord, would you enable us to hear them, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps, oh, Lord, help us to hear them afresh. We come needy and dependent. Oh, Lord, help us to see that in Christ we are your slaves. We are your servants. We owe everything to you. Oh, Lord, would you come and help us to see the power of the gospel, the power of being under grace and no longer under the law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard the little phrase, context is everything. And one of the things you notice when you read through the Bible is that there are a lot of phrases in the Bible that can easily be taken out of context. And when you do it, you misunderstand them uh, and uh, sometimes you even make them to mean the opposite of what they actually mean in context. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19, you see this little phrase, money is the answer to everything. Right? Just lift that one out of context, right? Or how about in Colossians 2, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Or we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? All of those verses are in the Bible. But if you take them out of their context, right, you've changed what the meaning of the author actually was. I, I, I'll let you go and read those passages and, and consider what they actually mean in context. This morning, as we look at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, we see another phrase that Christians have often used out of context. And I'm referring to that little phrase that you see in, in verse 14 and in verse 15. Uh, we are not under law, but under grace. Now, I grew up in Baton Rouge, and uh, in the, uh, the 80s and the 90s when I was growing up, whenever the topic of obedience to the law of God came up, uh, amongst Christians in the circles in which I ran, uh, I remember hearing this phrase, this verse, quoted a lot out of context. Right? It, it went like this, hey, I'm under grace, not law. And, and therefore, right, I don't have to obey the law. The law is irrelevant to me. I'm a Christian. I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. Have you ever heard this used in this way? Perhaps you, you've said it in this way. And so I remember uh, reading for the, the first time and, and understanding, uh, coming across this passage in the Bible itself and, and, and being dumbstruck. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul is saying the exact opposite of what I keep hearing from the Christians around me. If you read all of verse 14, right, you see that Paul is asserting that because Christians are no longer under law but are under grace— the conclusion is not, therefore, we are free to sin, we are free to transgress the law, but rather, the conclusion is, therefore, sin will have no dominion over us. And then in verse 15, he goes on to ask uh, this rhetorical question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
He's repeating the same question from chapter 6, verse 1, but from a little bit different angle. Because, as 1 John 3, 4 tells us, sin is lawlessness, right? we could rephrase Paul's question this way. Are we to disobey the law because we are not under law but under grace? And his answer is the same as verse 1. By no means. God forbid. Absolutely not. Now, we've seen how in verses 1 to 14, uh, Paul explained that by no means, by focusing on this truth, that the believer in Jesus uh, has been united to him in his death and in his resurrection, and so is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But here in verses 15 to 23, Paul explains his by no means in a little bit different way, doesn't he? He's expanding on the truth that he'd already stated in verses 6 and 7, that the Christian is no longer a slave to sin, but is now a slave to God. It makes you wonder if Bob Dylan had been reading Romans 6, right, when he wrote his famous lyrics, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Every single person on earth is a slave, either to sin or to God. Now, Paul, you notice in verse 19, acknowledges that when he uses this illustration of slavery, he is speaking in human terms, he says, because of their, their natural limitations, the, literally the weakness of their, of their flesh, their body. He knows that his first readers would have been familiar with slavery. It was a common social arrangement in the Roman Empire. In that culture, though, slavery was not based on race, as we often think about it here as it was in America. But rather, you might have become a slave for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you had been captured in war. Perhaps you had defaulted on a debt. Imagine if instead of chapter 13 bankruptcy, you just became someone's slave. Well, that's the way it was right back in the Roman Empire. Or, or maybe, this often happened as well, you would voluntarily sell yourself into slavery right? in order to, 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 to increase your social status, right? to, to gain a better life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has to command the Christians, do not do this. Right? Do not uh, become the slaves of men. And so Paul here knows that the Romans understand this principle, the principle that he writes in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? The Romans knew that the slave was fully committed to the master, committed completely at his disposal. And Paul's point in this passage is that because the Christian is no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to obedience and to righteousness and to God, it is unthinkable that we would reason from not being under the law, but being under grace, to therefore I have a license to sin. No, no, if we draw this conclusion, we don't have the slightest idea of what not being under the law or of being under grace even means. And it's very possible that if you reason in that way, if that's the way that you are living, that you're not under grace at all. And so this morning I want us to, to, to consider this text and to, to seek to understand what does Paul mean? What is Paul teaching us here? What does he mean by these phrases under the law and under grace? And, and about what does he mean by this, this imagery of slavery? either to sin or to God. Uh, let's consider this text under three uh, different aspects, three different questions I want to answer. First, what is true of you 
who are outside of Christ? Secondly, what is true of you who are in Christ? What has become true of you if you are now in Christ? And thirdly, who gets the glory for what has happened? Who gets the glory? So first, what is true of you who this morning are outside of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells us in this passage, doesn't he? He says first that you are under the law. What does he mean by this? Paul means that you are subject to the law's condemning curse and to the law's impotency. What does the law do? The law of God comes and it commands, it demands, and then it pronounces approval or blessing upon those who obey it, and it pronounces condemnation and curse upon the one who does not obey it, who disobeys it, even in the, the smallest way. And if you are outside of Christ this morning, then you are guilty. You are fallen in your first father, Adam, and in yourself by your own practice, by your own desires. And therefore, what the law does is it comes and it exposes you. It exposes your guilt. It convicts you of sin. We saw that back in chapter 3. As we'll see in chapter 7, though, the law also comes and incites you to even more sin. The commandment comes and just like a child, when its parent says, don't do this, you say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that thing. But here's what the law can't do. The law cannot justify you. The law cannot free you from bondage to sin. The law can't even give you the power to keep itself. It's sort of like Google Maps when you put in your, your route, your destination, and it, it routes it for you. It can tell you the right route to take. But Google Maps cannot enable you to take the right route, can it? All it can do is, when you miss the turn, say, recalculating, right? And tell you another route, the new route to take. Well, that's all the law can do. When you break the law, all the law can do is say, guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. Now, of course, when you miss a turn on Google Maps, it's usually when you're, you're actually looking at it and you're trying to follow. Then all of a sudden, it's like, ah, that was the turn. But with the law... It's not a mistake. It's a sin. It's a transgression. It's an intentional rebelliousness against God. And all the law can do is say, you are guilty. And so to be under the law is to be under God's wrath and curse, to be utterly without hope, to be utterly without any ability to change. And therefore, Paul goes on to say that not only are you under the law, but if you are outside of Christ this morning, you are a slave of sin. Sin is your master. Now you may think, I have no master. I am the captain of my soul. But Paul would say otherwise. You are a slave to sin. You are unable to do anything but sin, and you love it this way. Right? You, you sin willingly. You willingly obey sin. He says in verse 20, you are free in regard to righteousness. That is, God's standard has no authority in your life. It has no influence. You, you could care less about it. You don't take it into consideration at all. And so as he writes there in verse 19, you present your members as slaves to impurity, to uncleanness, to filthiness, and to lawlessness. You have no shame for the things that you think and do and, and say because why should you? Your body is your own. 
You can do whatever you want to do. If it tastes good, drink. If it feels good, do it. And so, finally, Paul would say to you, if you are outside of Christ this morning, you are bearing the rotten fruit of a slave of sin. He asks us there in verse 21, what fruit are you getting? What fruit are you getting? He tells us in verse 19, your lawlessness is leading to further lawlessness. It's like a dirty snowball rolling down a mountain where a herd of cattle have camped out for the night. You are an apple tree bearing only apple, rotten apples. You're a blueberry bush bearing only rancid blueberries. And he tells us in verse 16 and verse 21 that that the end, the goal, the telos of your life and of your lawlessness is death. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It is what you have earned by your bondage to sin, physical death, eternal death, eternal separation from God and from his goodness for all eternity. And so if you are outside of Christ this morning, hear the Apostle Paul Hear his words of warning. If you are not resting in Jesus alone for salvation from the wrath of God, this is what is true of you. And if you are in Christ this morning, then everything I've just said is what was true of you. But what have you become now? That brings us to the second question. What has become of you who are in Christ? Well, first, what can we say You have become a slave of obedience, of righteousness, and of God. Verses 17 and 18, Paul says, You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. He says it again in verse 22. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. See, Paul here is presupposing the principle that Jesus states in Matthew 6, verse 24, no man can serve two masters. It's an either-or proposition. You cannot have a dual allegiance. We get this, don't we, here in Mississippi. You either are a fan of Ole Miss or Mississippi State. Maybe you, you cheer for Southern Miss and sort of say a pox on both your houses. But we get it, don't we? You can't cheer for Duke and North Carolina. You can't cheer for Auburn and Alabama. It's an either-or proposition, and Paul is saying the same thing is true about sin and God. You will either give your ultimate allegiance to the one or to the other. Again, you see it there in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin or obedience? Now, Paul's also here presupposing this principle that that when a slave leaves one master and and presents himself to another, the old master has no authority over him. Perhaps you've had an experience like this where you've had a a job in sort of a a situation that is just toxic, and your boss is toxic, and your coworkers are toxic, and it's it's just horrible for you. It's been the worst job ever, but then you started a new job, and it was glorious. And what if you got an email or a phone call from your old boss telling you, you know, what time to be at your job the next morning or, or what to do? You would say, wait a minute, no. Like, I, you're no longer my boss. I've got a new boss right, who's much better than you. Right, I've got a new company, new coworkers that are far superior to the situation that I had when I worked in your company. In the same way, Paul is saying, sin is no longer your boss. It's no longer your master. 
If you are a Christian, Paul says, you have from the heart, you have willingly, you have voluntarily fled the service of sin and you have become obedient to the standard, the form of of teaching to which you are committed. That is, you have become committed to this truth of the gospel, or rather that, that, that truth of the gospel and all the ethical principles that flow from it have been entrusted and, and committed to you. You have been delivered over to it as a slave of God. You've been united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and you now have the responsibility and the calling to be who you are. You notice how the indicative again leads to the imperative. As slaves of God, verse 19, we are called to present our members as slaves to righteousness. Isn't this amazing how Paul here in this passage shows us that obligation to duty and voluntary delight in that duty are not inconsistent. From the heart, we obey God as our master in Christ. So that's what we have become. That's what's happened to you. If you are a Christian this morning, you have become a slave to obedience, to righteousness, and to God. And just like we once bore rotten fruit as a slave of sin, now, Paul says, we bear the good fruit of being a slave of God. Verse 19 and verse 22, he says, being a slave to obedience and to righteousness leads to sanctification, to even further progress in holiness. And what is the end of this sanctification process? The end of of our slavery to sin was death, but the end of our slavery to God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A fullness of righteousness. A righteousness and an eternal life in which we will only delight in obedience. Forever and ever, when Jesus Christ comes back, we will not be able to to sin at all. So this is who you were or who you are now if you are outside of Christ. And this is who you are in Christ, who are trusting in him. This is who you have become. Let me ask this last question because it's throughout this text. Who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? Now it's true throughout this passage, Paul uses language that, that shows that we are active. Right? We are fully engaged in, in our new condition of slavery to God and in our pursuit of holiness. Right? Verse 16, we are the ones who present ourselves as obedient slaves. Verse 17, we are the ones who have become obedient from the heart to this new standard of teaching. Verse 19, we are the ones who are, who are called to present our members as slaves to righteousness. But don't miss that Paul, throughout this passage also uses language that demonstrates that underneath our activity is the activity of God. He is the one who gets all of the glory, all of the credit, all of the praise in any obedience that we might render to him. Now, now what's the language I'm referring to here? Well, look at the beginning of verse 17. Does Paul thank the Roman Christians for being so smart and so wise and so virtuous that they switched their service from sin to God? No. What does he do? He says, but thanks be to God. God is the one who has done this thing. God is the one who gets the credit and the glory. He is the one who has made us obedient from the heart. And did you hear all the passive verbs in this text? There's one there at the end of verse 17 
He says, you were once slaves of sin, but you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. To which you were committed. We were handed over to this form of teaching. And who handed us over? By whom were we handed over? God, of course. This is what we call a divine passive. Right? We, something has been done to us. You see it again in verses 18 and 22. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And that last verb perhaps could better be translated, you were enslaved to righteousness. Again, these are divine passives. God has done this. God has set us free. God has enslaved us to himself. He is the one who gets the praise and the glory. And of course, look at the way that Paul describes eternal life in verse 23. It's not wages, is it? Right? Wages is something that we've earned, something that we are owed. This is what death is in relation to our sin. In our natural fallen state, we work hard at sinning. We work hard at living for ourselves and for our own pleasure, for our own glory, for sin and for Satan. And death is what we receive as payment our hard work. But what is eternal life? It is the free gift of God. It's something freely given, undeservedly given, graciously given. We haven't worked for it at all. We haven't earned it. We haven't produced it. We haven't merited it. It has been granted to us. It has been given to us in spite of what we've done, in spite of who we are. It is all of grace. And isn't that the, the phrase in this text that, that, that screams the loudest, that God is the one that gets the glory? We are under grace. And, and again, far from meaning that we have been freed from the law's obligation, or that we have a license to sin, or that sin here or there really isn't that big of a deal because, hey, we've been saved by grace. No, to be under grace is to be under the reign of of grace, to be subject to the control of grace, the power of grace. And it means that the whole purpose of our life now is to give glory to God with every part of who we are, all of our members, our, our whole being, to pursue holiness and the fear of God because we have a new master, a new Lord. Eternal life is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because here's the thing. You can't have half of Jesus. You can't go to God and say, well, I'd like to order Jesus as my Savior, right? But, but, but no lordship, please, right? I'll take Jesus as priest, right? But hold the kingship, hold the prophetic nature of Jesus and that work. No, no, I just want the, the work where he dies for my sins, right? I just want Jesus as Savior. Listen, no, no, you, you, you can't have half of Jesus. You either get the whole Jesus or no Jesus at all. Jesus is not sort of some sort of build-a-bear Jesus, Piccadilly Jesus. Jesus Christ is Savior and he is Lord. He is the one who comes and saves us from our sins. As we've said so many times, it feels, these past weeks, from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. The grace that justifies us is also the grace that sanctifies us. The grace that forgives us it's the grace that fashions us after the image of Jesus. The grace that adopts us is the grace that 
conforms us to the family likeness. The grace that delivers us from sin's penalty is also the grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives in this present age. The grace that freely gives us eternal life in the age to come is also the grace that gives us an abundant life in this age as we live out our slavery to God because our slavery to God is is slavery to a father who loves us, who alone can satisfy our weary souls. God gets all the glory for this work of taking slaves of sin and making us slaves of obedience and righteousness and himself. Now let's just seek to apply this text here for a moment as we close. Some of you here this morning are slaves to sin, and you could care less about it. In fact, you you don't even realize it. And when you hear what Paul says here, you could care less about it. It just doesn't even resonate with you. it's, It's as if you're not hearing the words that he is saying. You're happy to serve sin. And And you do it in a way that Paul would say, do you see the shameful manner in which you are living? Do you see the deadly fruit that it is bearing? Do you see the the spiritual death to which it is tending? I plead with you to hear the words of Paul so clear about your state, dead in sin, and flee to Christ. Repent, turn to him who alone can save you. But some of you here this morning, you are slaves to sin, but you think you're not. In this sense, you know, you say, yes, here's what slavery to sin is, and and that's not me. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm a Christian. And you think you're a Christian because you're a member of a church, even this church perhaps. Because you do some things that are externally good here or there. And yet, all along, you have no desire in your heart to live as a slave to God or of righteousness. You're more concerned with your own glory than God's glory. With pleasing yourself rather than pleasing the Lord. What does James tell us? Faith without works is dead. And so my prayer for you is that these words of Paul would be as if it where the the curtains are being pulled back on your heart, the the spotlight is shining on who you really are, that you are not converted because you are not living as a slave to God. You are living as a slave to sin. That is who you are, even though you think you are a slave to God, or at least you think you are one who belongs to God. My prayer is that you would truly be born again, regenerated, brought to saving faith and repentance. You must be born again. You must become from the heart obedient to the word of God. But many of you here this morning, you are not slaves of sin, but you live as if you are. And this happens in two different ways. You're Christians, but you're living as if the gospel is not true. Some of you do it like this. You are deeply discouraged even despairing. You're trying to walk in holiness, but it feels like you will never, ever overcome some 
besetting sin. And so you live each day as if you are a slave to sin, as if the handcuffs of sin are upon your wrist. But what does Paul tell you in this passage? Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. You can take the handcuffs off, he's saying. They're not even locked. You've put them on yourself. You're a slave to God. You're a slave to righteousness. You're not a slave to sin. Sin is not your master. God is. And as I said already, he is a kind master. For he is your heavenly father who loves you, who has given his Holy Spirit to you to help you, to assist you, to help you put sin to death. Now, yes, it's true. It may be a slow process, but it is not a hopeless process. Do not live as a slave to sin. Don't grow weary in your fight against unholiness as you seek to pursue holiness. Know that sin does not rule you. In confidence, do what Paul says here. By the grace of God, present your members day after day after day as one who is no longer a slave to sin. Present it to righteousness. Present it to God because you are his servant. You are his slave. But there's another way, isn't there, that we perhaps live as slaves to sin. And it's the people that Paul is talking to here, right? Some of you don't need to be comforted or encouraged. Some of you need to have the overhead lights turned on and the covers thrown off of you and the mattress flipped off and you flipped off the mattress. Get up. See the way you're living. You're living as a slave to sin. You're living as one who would would say what Paul is saying there in verse 15. Hey, we can sin because we're not under law but under grace. You're living as if sin doesn't matter anymore. You're walking in the deeds of darkness, even though you yourself are a a son or a daughter of light. Indeed, you are in danger of doing what Jude tells us, of turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And so hear the word of rebuke that Paul would give you this morning. A word of, of, of return, of saying, return to the gospel of free grace that changes us. That doesn't just pardon us, but empowers us for holiness. Brothers and sisters, I don't think it's overstatement to say that that Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. It is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. It's fundamental to our understanding of our identity in Christ. It's fundamental to our understanding of the nature of the Christian life. It's fundamental to understanding how do we overcome besetting sin, but by recognizing that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ and not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. And so I encourage you, I plead with you, read this text often. Maybe you need to read it every day for a season. Memorize it, meditate upon it, apply it in your lives. Where are you? Paul says, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're not a slave to sin. You're a slave to God. That is your identity. Therefore, go in that glorious truth. Walk in joy. Walk in peace from the heart. Obey him. Love him. Serve him. And go forth and proclaim this glorious truth to everyone you meet. Because everyone you meet is either a slave to sin or a slave to God. There is no option. There is no third choice. Let us go out into the world 
with this message of, of hope, that there is hope for those who are caught and enslaved in sin. There is the power of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, full salvation. Let's pray to God. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We give thanks to you, even as Paul did. Lord, because you have done it. You are the one. Lord, we can take no credit. We give you the glory that you have freed us from our slavery to sin. Lord, would you, even this morning, use your word to do just that in the hearts of those who are still in bondage. Lord, who are earning even now the wages of sin, which is death. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you have died in our place as believers so that you earned those wages, so that we might have the free gift of eternal life. Lord, we plead with you. Would you come and help us to understand the truth of these words so that we might walk as those who are free in our slavery to Christ. Oh, we thank you that you are our Savior and our Lord. And we ask that you would help us this day to present the members of our body to you in every way, to righteousness and not to sin. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.